Hello, and welcome back to the Morbid Museum. We are your hosts, Katie Mead and Luke Boyd. We missed you. Hey, how's it going? So glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> yeah, that we appreciate your patience as we took our much needed break. And we are beyond thrilled to be back with you again. I, I definitely missed recording with you, Luke. Yes, I did too, my dear. It was uh, it was an absence that I felt strongly, even though we've only made a few episodes together. I it was know. A week or two goes by. But we are now tanned, rested, and ready <laughs> for our return to the Morbid Museum podcast. Hit it, Luke. You're up. <laughs> All right. So for the review of the Morbid Museum Accession Committee, item number MM08, I submit the story <laughs> of the Collier Brothers. That's the fire like in the <laughs> Midnight Society. That's exactly what I want to I emulate. Yes, I submit this for the approval of the Midnight Society. So this week, our tour takes us back to the Big Apple. We've crossed the Atlantic once again. We are now on the east side of Manhattan in modern-day Harlem. That is where our story takes place. New York City, of course, is near and dear to Katie and I, our home. Yeah. And New York City is home to more than 8 million people. And though it is one of the densest places in the world, it is also a refuge for those who wish to disappear or withdraw from society. We, we know that the city can be very lonely, even though you're surrounded oh, yes. by people. <laughs> it's, it's, I find it to be lonelier sometimes. When I'm in a bad place, it's lonelier to be in the middle of the city than just like alone in your bedroom. It's really palpable. Yeah, it like amplifies whatever mood you're in. Like if you want to be mm -hmm. social, you can be social. If you want to mm -hmm. be lonely, you can drop off the face of the fucking earth. Uh, <laughs> very well, easily. Easy, it's easy to hide in a crowd, right? Exactly, exactly. And so the subjects of our story today are about those kinds of folks, the folks who might we might consider recluses or hermits. And they've lived in New York for centuries. And the story today is of two such individuals, Homer and Langley Collier, the Collier brothers. Yay. Now, now I know yeah. their names. Mm. I know the Collier name. But aside from the very one obvious characteristic about them that you will be explaining, and I don't want to jump the gun on that. I, I really don't know anything about this story, so I'm very excited. Yes. Well, I'm excited to, to take you through it. So have you seen Hoarders, the show on A&E? <laughs> oh, yes. Actually, <laughs> my personal preference back in the day was I really loved animal hoarding. <laughs> Ooh. It's oh. so much worse. It is worse. There's yeah. a there's a suffering element. In oh that yeah, and this like think creatures feeling that you can't love people, so you collect hordes and hordes of you know chickens because they'll love you unconditionally. It's devastatingly sad. But the idea of just collecting stuff, any stuff, on mass is such a such an awful affliction. It it actually runs in my family pretty badly and yeah it's just trying to find some kind of connection and obsession with not letting things go it's yeah. a it's a very difficult i mean it's a mental illness it really is there's a mental disorder and it afflicts many people and i think many yeah. of 
watching the show, knowing hoarders in our lives and our families, our friend networks, we're always sort of thinking to ourselves, am I a hoarder? Like, is this, is my head <laughs> road to hoarding? You know, it's a very tempting, beguiling place to be. The more stuff we collect, the more material we become. But usually hoarding is connected to something that is in the person's mind. They've been genetics or something that happened to them. I think it's um, often a trauma. I think it's trauma mm -hmm. related more often than not. It is. Yeah. And um, I watched, I got, I got back into hoarders during the pandemic. What <laughs> uh, a great time to get it was into a that kind of a great show. like medical bandaid when everything Ooh. was just terrible, you know, to sort of go through this procedural story where you meet someone who has a hoard and the professionals try to help them through it mentally and also physically getting them freed from the stuff that's literally trapping them in their homes. The hoarding, it's devastating. It, really it is, is devastating. Yeah. And it tears apart families. It destroys oh, family yeah. connections and lives. And you always meet these sons, grandchildren, daughters of these hoarders in these shows. And they're just exasperated. They're exhausted. They love, yeah. they love their loved one, but they're, they feel powerless to sort of break the cycle. Yeah. And sometimes, I mean, it's really, it's not just like, oh, you have so much like junk in your house. Sometimes it's situations where it's actually dangerous. The air in there is so foul and so bad that like people are developing respiratory issues yep. and they're not in a safe, livable environment to the point where their house could very easily just be condemned, that it needs to be just like bulldoze to the ground. It's so bad. Yes. And we think of famous hoarders. Of course, we think of the Beals of Grey Gardens. Yeah. Uh, and for those who've never experienced Grey Gardens, that is such an amazing little gem of pop culture that I recommend to anyone. It is amazing. It starts with those documentaries by the Maisels brothers. It then evolves into a musical. Yep. And it's an amazing story of two women born into privilege and wealth and post great depression. What happens when that wealth begins to run out? The daughter never leaves the house. The mother ha needs medical care and attention and this endless cycle of pushing each other away, needing each other and then collecting mm -hmm. stuff all around them makes for an amazingly macabre and Gothic American story. Oh yes. And tell me if, if you find this to be true, Luke, it's certainly true for those ladies. There's a certain level of eccentricities, I oh, think, yes. that can go along with quite a few hoarders. Yes. They're and not the easiest people to get along with, to have relationship with. Yeah, they're they're by the accumulating their stuff, they have to make all these accommodations. Right. Rejecting rejecting norms of cleanliness. And often they're railing against these government figures who are coming in saying your property is in violation of a code. Mm -hmm. I need you able to see the sunlight through your windows. They're like, hell no, this is my way of life. And so they get very combative. And it's all, again, it's part of that disordered way of thinking. So right. we might have a little fun talking about Colliers today um, because they were extremely eccentric in the most New York way possible. Um, <laughs> but we don't want to, of course, diminish the suffering of people who are going through this. So let's talk about who the Collier brothers were. So it's important let's. to start with who their parents were. Herman Livingston Collier was a physician in New York City. We're situating ourselves in the late 19th century, so the late Victorian period, 1880s. Oh, what a change of pace for us. <laughs> <laughs> Back to the old black and white. Uh, yes. So we're, we've discovered several unifying themes in the stuff we like to cover. So Herman Livingston Collier is a physician. He is very well-to-do. He marries a lady named Susie Gage Frost 
Collier. Um, These names are so deliciously 19th century. I love them. Susie Gage Frost. Now, love it. Um, I don't. I don't know if Frost was her maiden name, but the weird thing about the Colliers was, like our buddies the Roosevelts, these guys were cousins. Intermarian. <laughs> yeah. So is this part of the story? Maybe. Um, mm. so, her, so Herman and Susie were, I believe, first or second cousins, which the math is not good on that in terms of what's, <laughs> what's produced. We know that's not good. The Punnett Square is not cute at that point. Mm, 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 mm. It's very flat. It's very oblique. Um, Kissing cousins equals mental <laughs> illness. <laughs> so the uh, the Colliers had this claim that they were descended from early pilgrim families. Um, basically, they said when the Mayflower got here, we were on the next boat right after. That claim has is dubious to say the least. However, they are descended from the Livingston family. Oh, as in the New York Livingstons? The New York Livingstons, which of course oh. brings us to a reference to 1776 because we know. Oh, yeah, it does. <laughs> so the Livingston family are big in New York City. New York state history from the founding to uh, through the revolution. And we know that in the uh, song about the declaration committee, Mr. Livingston, Robert Livingston, who was a delegate from New York state is canvassed by John Adams in the musical version, 1776 and asked to write the declaration. And of course he defers because he's just had a baby presented with a new son by the noble stork. <laughs> so I'm going home to celebrate and pop the cork. Oh, you really, you're doing the whole thing. <laughs> With all the Livingstons together back in old New York. New, New York, York! New York! Every listener we had is gone forever. <laughs> Analytics drop through the floor like so much <laughs> like so much rotted garbage in a hoard. <laughs> I'm so sorry, everybody. I thought you were going to join me on that, but uh, okay. I did. I, so, I went in a little bit, but then you I realized. Did, you did. You came in at the end, yes. Whether it's dancing on the staircase. Okay, so... Um, Livingstons, so very important. The Livingstons, super... Critical family history, very important for Broadway history as well. So, <laughs> so the Colliers have two sons. Homer Collier is born in 1881, and he's followed by his brother Langley in 1885. So Homer Ooh, with is those names, they didn't stand much of a chance. Homer Lusk Collier, Langley Wakeman Collier. Mm, what kind of yeah. Abercrombie bullshit? I love it. Mm-hmm. So Herman was a physician, but he was specifically a gynecologist in the late Victorian period, which I'm sure must have oh. been very interesting <laughs> compared to today. Um, and he worked for years at the famous Bellevue Hospital in New York City, which it was is mostly just delivering babies and giving women opium, I think. <laughs> yes. Laudanum, hysteria. Yeah. Yeah. Sex toys, all that stuff. So, oh, um, I mean, that's a whole other. We can definitely do it episode on that, by the way. Yeah, I love that story. Um, so Homer and Langley are sons of privilege, and they attend Columbia University. Homer studies law, and Langley studied engineering. So he's very good with his hands. He's something of a tinkerer. And Langley also was a musician. He becomes a concert pianist and apparently played at Carnegie Hall. So these are not, you know, little rich boys these are, I mean, they have, they come from money, but they're they doing do. things with their lives. They do. They have aspirations, they have goals, and their mother, Susie, was an opera singer. So it was a very oh, musical home. musical family. A very Maybe they family. get that from the Livingstons. <laughs> of course they did, yes. 
<laughs> so following their following their collegiate studies, the brothers did a unique thing in the early 20th century, uh, not so unique today. They stayed home. Uh, they continued to live with their parents, and both men never married. So they were oh. ba- they were bachelors of the of the time period. Double bachelor, double brother bachelor. And so huh. what happened? What happened in the years following is that mom and dad drifted apart. Father Herman got his own place, another brownstone. In 1909, the family. This is was... all in Harlem, still. So yes, yeah, let me let me okay. go back for one second. So in 1909, um, Herman moved the entire family to a four-story brownstone at 2078 Fifth Avenue. So it's at okay. 128th Street and Fifth Avenue. Amazing property. It was right at the border of what we'd call uh, Harlem proper and uh, East Harlem today. But at the time, it was where a lot of people of means and wealth and upwardly striving people were moving to. It was near Central Park, very high real estate values, elevated railroads coming your way. So yes. it was really a happening very place. Very expensive. Very expensive, very happening place to be. So Herman eventually drifts apart from his wife, and eventually they live apart. But the boys stay with Mama Susie. So now mm. it's the three of them in the house being weird. So... <laughs> I gotta tell you, very uncomfortable. I gotta tell nothing sexual. I gotta tell you, <laughs> I gotta tell you about Herman, Doctor Collier. So Homer and Langley's dad. He was such a kooky character. Mm-hmm. So he worked for several medical institutions in New York City. He also worked at City Hospital, which was on Blackwell's Island, which we now know as Roosevelt Island. So what he would do is every morning he would walk out of the house with a canoe. Over his head. Stop it. Oh, I'm not finished. He walks down to the banks of Harlem River, gets in the water, and paddles himself to work to and from every single day. Why? <laughs> I don't know. The the, the, the the sweet, polluted sense of the Harlem and East Rivers must have done great things for his, um, you know... <laughs> options you have other options you have carriages there's bridges there's i'm sure there's a company boat that'll take you you know know, but you know if you've heard that phrase i can paddle my own canoe he seems like that kind of guy i can paddle my own canoe literally so the the eccentricities (laughs) begin with dad for sure for sure um so he's doing that thing where he's commuting to (laughs) Blackwell's Island. Maybe that's why he moves. I'm like, this canoe ride is so long. I got to go down like 20 blocks, bitch. I'm getting older. Um, (laughs) So the Collier's home was a beautiful brownstone, huge house, four stories. And it's a living museum to who's living there, the inhabitants. When they were living there with their mother, they would have been surrounded by all kinds of musical instruments, Mm. you know, pianos, old violins from the 18th century, amazing dreams of sheet music. um, And it bespeaks the love of, of music that Susie and Langley shared. And Dr. Collier, of course, was also a collector. And he collected thousands of medical volumes. So he's got a massive library. And get this, he has a number of medical oddities in the home. Oh. Mm. Yeah. So imagine big old round jars of pickled organs and things like that. Sure. Yeah. All kinds of these things displayed. Butter proud- museum vibes. Extremely. Yes. Lots of weird human DNA and, and stuff just floating around in there. I feel um, like for any 
any gentleman of the era who considered themselves a man of science would have that kind of crap in their life if they were into collecting. The way Teddy Roosevelt had incredible uh, taxidermy collections. Like, you know, it was, Mm -hmm. it it, it spoke to where you were going, where you were from, the status you had, and your interest in all kinds of things. And it also was like, showing off like look at this cool shit that i have <laughs> exactly yeah it's a great conversation piece yeah um so it's widely understood the family did have immense wealth and the brothers you know contributed to that in the terms that they had jobs but they inherited all of their parents stuff when the parents pass away in 1923 and 1929 so when dr collier passes away they absorb all his shit back at their house And when mother passes away, they do not throw out a single thing from her largesse. So Mm. you've already got a good base of a horde going on here. Um, So that takes us to 1929. The stock market crashes. The Great Depression dawns. And as their parents passed, both brothers slowly retreat from society. Huh. The brothers entertained in their lavish home for several years. Homer continues to practice law. And Langley works as a piano dealer. I mean, they sound like a lovely gay couple, even though they're brothers. <laughs> really? It you just didn't sounds, know any better. It just sounds lovely. It sounds, it sounds like, like a nice little life. Great little conversations over wine in the Collier Mansion. Now, um, I think I think it's safe to assume, and, and maybe you can confirm it, but that's really hard to lose your parents that close to one another, like in time. It was It was within a decade. Yes. And... If you're living with them, I imagine, relatively close. They were very close. So this is the potential for that trauma. Yes. In hanging. addition to being exposed to hoarding very early on, obviously. Not being strange. mentality. Not being strangers to stuff and identifying yeah. the stuff with these beloved figures, these outsized figures in their lives. Yeah. You know, I'm sure everything in their house had a very Victorian memory attached. Like, oh, that reminds me we went to opera with mother and blah, blah, blah. You know, nothing, nothing could be discarded. No, um, I mean, listen, you know, I'm going through this right now with the loss of my grandmother. I told Luke this, but I was at her house this weekend and it is a hoard of mm-hmm. mostly junk yeah. but i look at it and it's like oh that was her favorite bread knife what am i gonna throw out her favorite bread knife and before you know it i've got boxes full of shit yes yeah <laughs> that i just don't need but that remind me of her and there's sentimentality behind it and just this and maybe this was the case for them like if you let go of anything of theirs am i then also letting go of them and I'm not ready to do that, you know, especially mm-hmm. when it's your parents. Yeah, I just feel like it's such a common thing. I think we all, not all of us, but I think a lot of us connect oh. objects with emotion in Absolutely. a big way. Absolutely. You I, know? you know, we all have tokens and relics, personal items that may yeah. may, may, may have no outward appearance of import to someone but it's like again the spoon this bottle this thing yeah is is endowed with a meaning that transcends its banality exactly we saw that so much when we worked at the 9-11 memorial right luke they people donated like their husband's shoes that he loved and like to you and i it's like it's just a pair of shoes but this person is gone now and it actually shows that they had a huge shoe collection and it was something that they loved and so it's 
we we value things differently sometimes. It's not just what they're worth monetarily. Although it sounds like these guys also had things that were fairly valuable. They did. As well. So they did. Their possessions were very valuable. And one thing that they absorbed when Dr. Collier died was a Model T Ford automobile. <gasps> no <laughs> shit. Like in the early 1900s. Yeah. Yeah. No so this would shit. be 19 teens, maybe 1920s. Yeah, the teens, right? Prob- probably an early just black Model T. And, you know, oh parking, parking was much better back then, but they actually disassembled it and brought it into the house. And that's going to come up later on. So keep that in your mind. Oh, it's there. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> it's parked right in my mind. <laughs> okay. So some, some more setbacks come to the Colliers that really affect their outlook. So in 1933, Homer, the older brother, the lawyer, went blind. From a stroke. Oh no! He had How hemorrhoid. old are they now? So in 1933, they are they're in their 50s, 60s, young, 50s ish. Yeah. So 18, That's 80, young. 1881. He's 52. Yeah. That's terrible. So very, very shocking, very sad. Um, so he goes blind. He has hemorrhages behind his eyes that lead to this blindness, Ooh. and and uh, Langley becomes Homer's full time caretaker. So he quits his job, and now he is in little Edie's position where he is mm. stuck but he's you know he has agency you know and i should say that around this time the neighborhood's demographics begin to shift and some of the resources i point out they maybe they i think the the boys were plenty eccentric but some people cite that the changing racial demographics from a more wealthy white neighborhood to a, a more middling class neighborhood of people of afro originated descent you know they may have had some racial leanings that led them to turn inward so even though the neighborhood is changing ah. <laughs> so it's there, probably well there you go it's probably a couple couple things at once so this is the changing neighborhood at the time. And as Langley once said in an interview, we don't want to be bothered. And he doesn't want to be bothered by anybody. You know, by anything govern- or anything. Govern- yeah, yeah, government, mailman, doesn't matter. Ice cream man, doesn't matter. Do not bother me. As they withdrew, rumors begin to swirl about the brothers and their eccentric lifestyle. Langley, able-bodied Langley, fully sighted Langley, would trudge through the city late at night and he would just amass massive amounts of found objects that would just find their way into the house. And what? just like just, garbage picking level. Like yeah, when yeah. I was in college and I found a couch on the curb and me and my roommate thought, that's a good idea. Let's take this. Yeah. Which, done- by the way, don't ever do that. <laughs> Don't ever do it in New York, especially when it's warm enough for insects to live. Oh my god. That's the important thing. If it's in the winter, you can take whatever the hell you want. But if it's yeah. if it's warm out, that's just got roaches. So um, so he's like, yeah, collecting things like baby carriages, tools, lots of newspapers, wow. which is a big hallmark of hoarding. Every um, hoarder I have ever come across, it's it, paper is like the number one problem. It's the key ingredient, right? Like, yes, yeah. it's, it's ma- oh, it has my old address. Something oh, or like it's oh, it it's it's got important information or oh, I haven't read that yet. That's why I haven't gotten rid of that that magazine. And it's like, yes. you're never going to read it. It's 10 years old. <laughs> So what's interesting is that people are walking by this house every day in well-populated and dense Harlem, and they're not seeing anybody coming or going. Mm-hmm. And the house is reported to contain these great riches of this of this ancient Collier family, and that entices burglars and home invaders. And the home becomes known locally as the House of Mystery, mm. which is just delicious. Um, yeah, and so we sexy. would. 
it's pretty sexy. So we we would we would categorize these gentlemen, probably Langley uh, more specifically, as a compulsive hoarder. And so he's a he's collecting a lot of possessions, and he's not discarding anything at all. What we know is that in the DSM five, compulsive hoarding would be considered oftentimes triggered by a trauma. Sometimes it is genetically motivated as well. You see that yep. passing down in families, also nature and nurture. People learn from hoarders if they're mm -hmm. raised by hoarders, that kind of thing. Get this, Langley is. He's got busy hands, you know, he's always doing something. So Langley is trying to guard against invaders of his beloved castle, his home. So as an engineer, he devises a number of booby traps in the home using the Okay, whore. I did know this. This is ringing <laughs> bells now. This is great. Yes. So he's rigging these booby traps. Basically, he's digging these tunnels through the horde, and he's setting these trip wires. And the idea is that if a burglar, A, gets into the home, which was guarded like Fort Knox, B, <laughs> dives into a hole, uh, a, a tunnel leading to God knows where, to try <laughs> to find God knows what, to get God knows what out of that two-foot-wide hole, if they trip that wire... Thousands of pounds of newspapers will fall on them and disable them, crush uh, them, kill them. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> it's the so, Home Alone house now. <laughs> yes, it is. It is completely rigged. It is rigged, girl. Completely. So, oh, my God. <laughs> so he's got these trip wires all throughout these narrow passageways, and he's trying to guard against any prowlers. As the years go on, Langley gets more and more eccentric, more and more obstinate, and Homer suffers. Homer suffers from rheumatism. Mm. which leads to paralysis throughout his body. So now he's in a position where he can barely see. He's completely blind and he is almost completely paralyzed. Jesus. Now, so, and where is this guy living? In a small little cave within the horde that Langley has set aside for him. He probably could have used legitimate nursing care instead of just his brother taking care of him. Oh, yes. And it gets more interesting, Katie, because you... His mentally unwell brother. Yes. Did he... Now, because he wasn't the one physically doing it, did Homer have any, that you know of, have any objection to the hoarding? Or was he totally good with it? By all means, let's do it. Is there He's any way to know that? They seem to be a pretty united front. There is mm. an, there's several occasions where various entities like the bank tries to evict them for backed mortgage payments. Um, utility companies come to disconnect things. And there's actually a scene in the 30s where Homer emerges from the home. And apparently it was one of the only oh. times Homer is seen outside the home for these decades. And people thought that Homer was murdered by Langley. They thought Langley was a killer. <laughs> like a... Like a Whatever happened to Baby Jane kind of situation. Oh, oh that's so delicious. <laughs> yes. But you are, Blanche. You, you are, Blanche. Yeah. <laughs> so this is really funny. I'm sorry, Colliers. This is pretty, pretty funny. So interestingly, the brothers distrusted doctors and never sought medical attention. Oh, my God. So this man who's had a stroke and has rheumatism and God knows what other horrible illnesses is not under the care of a doctor. Mm -hmm. Now, remember who their father was, Dr. Collier. A doctor. <laughs> so Langley says to a reporter in an interview, I love these interviews with Langley Collier. They're fucking gold. There are so many good quotes. He's talking to all these reporters. He's this righteous, indignant homeowner. He's like, get the fuck off my property. And so he says, you must remember that we are sons of a doctor. We have a medical library of 15,000 books in the house. We decided we would not call in any doctors. You see, we knew too much about medicine. Now, 
I can see that being interpreted two ways. They have all this knowledge of medicine from their father, or they observed something in the medical community or practice that turned them off from doctors. You see what yeah. I mean? So that's interesting. And we well, it's you can't you can't know be a doctor because your dad was a doctor. It's not right. it's not a family business. That's like As, you know the movie Step Brothers. Yeah. Where he's like, this is a house of learned doctors. That's not how it works. As much as I want to put my hand on a book and like the Matrix absorb all the information, um, no, yeah, and it's not. And not it's not really. as if and it's not as if Langley was providing any any kind of fake or learned care that he got from his dad because he supervised his brother's care, which included a diet of one hundred oranges a week. What? That's so many oranges. Black bread and peanut butter. And this was all attempt to cure Homer's blindness. Now, basically, if you add ramen to that equation, that's my college diet. I was going to say, that's <laughs> most people's. Survival. Yeah. So, well, so at least, you know, we didn't have scurvy, so that's nice. Yeah, no scurvy. Um, and the house, I guess I combated the smell maybe a little bit in the house, the orange rinds. But um, so he was oh, trying so to. that was actually, Luke, that was my other question. When you say he didn't throw anything away. Mm -hmm. Are we at the point now where we're also not throwing? I know you want to talk about poop, bitch. But no, <laughs> I was going to say food scraps. Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> like if we're if he's hoard, if they're hoarding food and like, you know, like milk bottles, like gross stuff like that. Yes. Yes, absolutely. There is discarded food. Um, oh. And so he's trying to cure his brother's blindness to no avail. And Langley's interest in tinkering and inventions continue to turn inward to this home. So the home continues to become an eyesore. Over the course of the decades, it is slowly cut off from the grid. So there's mm. no electricity. There's no heat. There's no phone. All of these things are no water. All of these things are slowly disconnected. Because they haven't been paying the bills. Not paying the bills and hating the man and whatever. And they're not poor. They're not poor. That's the crazy thing is this is just them a becoming choice. weirder and weirder. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they would a choice rather, as a result of the illness. Yeah. Yeah. They would rather be cold or not have <laughs> running water than give any money to the government. They just wanted to live like the Livingstons of old New York. That's what they were just <laughs> trying to trying to commune. So they did all these things to kind of make up for that, right? So it's cold in this house. So they have a kerosene lamp um, in the house. And apparently that was the only light that could be seen from the house at night, like one little kerosene lamp in this huge oh, four-story four brownstone. And the windows are covered with shit. There's no, they're just stacks of shit in front of the windows. So even if oh, one not was- not like intentionally covered, there's just so much shit in the house that it's covering the window. Right, like imagine like boxes and newspapers and, and shit. And it's just, so it's like, even if you broke a window, you couldn't penetrate this horde. Like it was locked Jesus. up. Um, and my favorite part of this story is that undeterred by being locked away from the power grid, Langley styles himself an inventor and he well, tries he tries to convert the Model T Ford into an electric generator. <laughs> <laughs> it works great. You just have to crank it all night. <laughs> I just like think of myself and my cousins, like my uncle always had this like old computer parts in the basement and we'd always play with it and like pretend everything was, we pretend we were like NASA, like ground control. We're like, all these systems are working. Like it's not my guys. I made it. <laughs> Same kind of bullshit. Like that motherboard cannot save you fool. Well, Pretty it's bad. crazy because I, I mean, clearly if you have 
a career in engineering, you're you're a relatively smart person. Yes. But when intelligence mixes with mental illness, it doesn't necessarily equal great results. Sometimes it equals genius. It doesn't sure. sound like that was the case in this no, the, instance. The, the Henry Ford never never got the patent for the Model T generator, so that never oh. that never took off. Um, they collected water from a local park maybe from Central Park, there was apparently a water pump. So they had all these means of, all this work for Langley to do to keep the house going. And sometimes, although you couldn't see anybody or 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 see any light, you could often hear music coming from the house because Langley would play the piano for his blind brother, Ugh. which is just so haunting and yeah. sad. Yeah, what a, what a incredibly scary place to walk by it must have been one of those houses where like you dared your friend to go ring the doorbell or something definitely you know? definitely a house of haunt and absolutely terrifying and homer i'm sorry langley was weird to look at he like has a big burly mustache his his clothes are like all pinned together Hang on, I'm talking i want to i want to look at them i'm gonna google them real quick oh yeah go for it yeah so langley collier does not look like somebody you want to fuck with and it looks like he reeks um <laughs> just looking at these black and white images of him oh god so, yeah scary yeah he don't he don't look good he don't yeah. look well teeth are all messed up he looks like oh yes days you know he's got these extreme gestures in these photos um, and in some of these pictures he has so much dirt on his hands and like yes i hate those on pictures his skin it's awful it's very Ooh. obvious and that's like a flash bulb going off probably eliminating some of the grit <laughs> but it's still pretty gross oh yeah his teeth yipes oh dear okay <laughs> okay nightmare time All right, I'm um here. <laughs> so so in the in the late 1930s is when the brothers begin to gain widespread notoriety. So in mm -hmm. 1939, Con Edison employees attempt to remove gas meters from the house oh, that, no. had been, <laughs> that, that had been shut off eight, 10 years before. And this is when the brothers both come out of the house and angrily drive the workers away from the site, which, of course, drew a massive crowd of onlookers. Con Ed. So just just write that one off. Just can let you, it go. Can you imagine like being at home and it's like, oh my God, the, the colliers are coming out. Holy shit. Like you you want to see that. Like that is woo, yeah. you know, local, these local Boo Radleys. So Seriously. In, in 1942, the Bowery Savings Bank threatens to evict the brothers for the failure to pay their mortgage. And oh. apparently Langley walks out with a check for $6,000, which pays off the debt. How do those rich motherfuckers still have a mortgage? They didn't pay that off? I know. It's strange. Like, I don't know what kind of financing they did in 1909, but damn. And like, that shit should have been like nothing by the time they got to the Papa 30s. Collier did not do his job. I'll tell you that. No. And so the New York Herald Tribune gets to the scene and they interview Langley, get this. And when he's asked about the stacks of newspapers inside the house, Langley says, I am saving newspapers for Homer so that when he regains his sight, he can catch up on the news. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> right. Like, let me just read newspapers from the last 14 years to get caught up on what's also, going on. Also, were you not letting him know what was going on every day? <laughs> right. We obviously don't care about the outside world. I mean, apparently all they had was like a crystal radio in the house. It's like this Hitler guy, but uh, I wouldn't worry about him. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, FDR gets elected five times. <laughs> you didn't miss blah, much. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Um, so... Now we get to the morbid scenario here in the story. So in, in uh, March 21st, 1947, 
1947 now, a call is placed by a Charles Smith to a local police precinct reporting that a dead body was in the house at 2078 uh, Fifth Avenue, citing a smell of decomposition, a miasma, if you were. So the cops roll up. And there's no way to get into the house. So they break through the front door and they're confronted with a massive pile of stuff from floor to ceiling. Now, this is a brownstone, right? So what do we think? The ceilings are, what, 12 feet high? Oh, yeah. Huge. The pictures, which I will allow you to Google now, if you look at the pictures inside the hoard, you will see pictures of these amazing police officers stomping (gasps) on top of a pile that's, they're right next to a chandelier. So the pile is so tall that they are just on top of this pile, 9, 10 feet, 11 feet in the air. Okay, listeners, this is like someone who's claustrophobic, uh, like my personal nightmare. Because, yes, they are literally crouching down to not hit the ceiling. Between between the horde and the ceiling. It's... oh. Mind-boggling. So they're like, we got to get to the, the, we got to figure out what's going on here. Did someone die in this house? So what they start doing is they start pulling shit out from the front door in, trying to make a path into the house. So huge piles of newspapers, beds, chairs, sewing machines, baby carriages, umbrellas, and neatly tied packets of junk emerge from the home and are now being stacked up all along the street. After several hours of digging, Homer's body is discovered in a small open space on the second floor. His body is surrounded by piles of newspapers that went all the way up to the ceiling. Oh, my God. Homer's body is found seated in a chair. And his paralysis was such that he was often very, very hunched and where his legs were almost very close to his chest. And his head was seen resting on his knees. So he's in a very thin and feeble state, and he's only wearing a blue tattered bathrobe. Oh. So it's a very undignified end. And the coroner comes to the scene and discovers that Homer has died of starvation and heart disease. And they say he's only been dead for about 10 hours. Starvation. Starvation. So what the fuck happened to Langley? Yeah, that's why I always said. Why did he make? Did he? Did he make the call? Is he tramping through town? A massive manhunt ensues, and Langley is seen boarding a train to Atlantic City. He's seen in Pennsylvania. He's seen in all, or reportedly seen in right, all these right, places, right? right? In, like in these manhunts tend to do. So basically, any <laughs> any any frumpy old fuck with a mustache, they were like, "Gets him." That's he's on the subway playing with Cookie Monster. He's a collier. <laughs> Get him. <laughs> So the search continues regionally and more material comes out of the home. Now we're talking about thousands of books, an x-ray machine, Jesus Christ, several pianos, several, several pianos. Langley was a piano dealer Um, and yet more newspapers. So within a week, 80 tons of trash are removed from the house. Which, Crazy. which physically seems impossible in terms of the construction of a building. Like you're telling me that building had a load for 80 tons. That's insane. So we discover the truth about Langley. On April 8th, 1947, the body of Langley Collier is oh. found inside the home. Oh, he was, no. He was discovered in a tunnel of debris that had collapsed on him. Oh, yeah. really? Mm-hmm. So 
The body had exhibited advanced decomposition and his remains had been partially eaten by rats. <gasps> now, the medical examiner discovers, finds that Langley had died on March 9th. That was the smell that the tipster reported. <sighs> Langley died first. It, his, <sighs> his body was found 10 feet from Homer's body. That's so why what, he starved. Okay. Right. So what happened was he was crawling through the tunnel to bring Homer food. Oh. And he activated his own booby trap. No. And suffocated when the hoarded materials collapsed into the tunnel. That is just so sad. That is so but, sad. Think of the auditory record that all that, that Homer lived by. Oh. And and then he's lingers for like 10 or 11 days unable to move and just starves what a horrible horrible end that's it's terrible. terrible it's so tragic and so sad so all told 120 tons of material is removed from the house in the fullness of the evacuation of the property now many of these podcasts and articles discuss the ridiculous things that come out of the house so contained within there's more baby carriages bowling balls, old food, cameras, Mrs. Collier's hope chest, a total of 14 pianos. <laughs> the 14 pianos <laughs> probably could have paid off the mortgage. <laughs> right. But how do you get it out of there? I don't know. So How do you get them in there? <laughs> there's a bunch of plaster busts, which I wish I had a collection of plaster busts from the 19th century. Sure. Um, there's boxes of pinup girl photos. Oh, hey. Excuse you, sir. And there's <laughs> gramophones and thousands of newspapers. You can't all... have too many gramophones. Everyone knows that. <laughs> oh, please. Um, and so among those oddities were Dr. Collier's preserved medical specimens, which included organs pickled in jars mm -hmm. and the body of a two-headed fetus. Why? <laughs> Why? <sighs> they love the medical oddity, huh? They, we do, we do. And uh, so the unmasking of the Collier's strange habits made national news overnight. I mean, how could it not? That's absolutely insane. I mean, the tragedy of the deaths is so terrifying and macabre. I mean, this people must have gone wild for this story. Oh, it was huge. It was so juicy. Um, and so firefighters to this day, if they respond to a horde in New York City and I'm sure beyond, mm. they often refer to it as a Collier's Mansion. Oh, oh we got a we got a Collier's Mansion here. We got a Collier's Mansion here. We need my backup. <laughs> but it really does speak to the the dangers of that uh, illness. You know, it's extremely. not just it's not just that it's unsightly or you know, you know, annoying or whatever, but it can really get to this point where it's so out of control that their lives are at risk. Yes. And that's what they do in these television shows. They try to have these interventions where, you know, they help, they try to help the person identify these are the risks to your health. Yeah. You know, maybe you have a loved one who has respiratory issues, who's exacerbated by this. Right. And, you know, the dangers are very real. So there was a, an ultimate price for the independent lives that the Colliers led. So many of the artifacts were sold off, um, I'm sure. auctioned off. The Colliers themselves were very financially solvent. You know, in today's money, they would have had well over several million dollars worth of property and money and insanity. Money in the bank. <laughs> money in the bank. You know, and again, Collier. I mean, uh, Langley could have had all new teeth if he wanted. 
you know, oh. could have had new chompers. Um, so the most interesting and most macabre thing that I found, Katie, was the chair that Homer died in was apparently displayed at Hubert's Dime Museum in Times Square in New York City for decades. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's bizarre. Isn't that weird? Where is it now? Do you know? I don't know. I think it's lost. That I must think... have been another auction off money under the yeah. table situation. Yeah, it's, it's like Barnum's Museum. Like, you know, these things, these things don't survive. A lot of these weird <laughs> artifacts. And that's actually a good point for this podcast in general. There will be many stories we will tell where we just can't track some of the stuff down because there's so many private collectors who love this kind of weird stuff sure and they make it a point of personal pride to own them and not share them so yeah. uh you know it's it, we're very lucky when we have access to to things but it it does happen and and we're always appreciative of people who want to put things on loan and for exhibits and display. Thank you. People who do that, but some people that's not what they're about. So no, fuck you it's, guys. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the privacy of having the object. And what's interesting is that, you know, we're museum professionals, but something like a dime museum or like Barnum's museum in the 1880s and nineties, these places were by the upper class. They were reviled as these they're fake, disgusting, yeah. fake museums. Right. And isn't this a humbug? Yes. And how, we're still living in a world today where the veracity of the museum and its primacy as a arbiter of history is, you know, there's a lot of fake museums out there. There's a oh, lot yes. of BS attractions out there yes. that aren't real museums. They're just after a buck, you know? Um, and so we're not part of that situation per se. No. And so in 1947, the home was deemed structurally unsound and who in the world, <laughs> who in the world would want to live there? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The house is screaming structurally. <laughs> I imagine it also just reeked of piss and shit. Like, yes. get going to my field of interest. But, like, <laughs> I mean, they have no water, no running water anymore. So they're clearly no. going to be using chamber pots. It must have just been beyond. They're living in filth. Horrendous. Yeah. Horrendous. Yeah. And there's so no, there's no coming back from that. I mean, I've seen stuff no. with hoarders where it's like animal hoarders specifically where there's so much cat piss in the house that like you you have to pull up every inch of the carpet you have to like do a deep cleaning of the walls and stuff and even then you still might not get that smell out no like yeah who the fuck would want to live there i can't spend eternity here this place <laughs> it reeks fish cat piss <laughs> American Horror Story deep cut. Um, that is a deep cut. <laughs> so in the 1960s, under Mayor Lindsay, uh, there was a movement to create additional green spaces in New York. And they called these mini parks vest pocket parks or pocket parks. And so there were several lots identified in the Harlem area in Manhattan as possible contenders for pocket parks. And in 1965, pocket, pocket I love parks. it. Park park parks. Park. And in 1965, the Collier Brothers Park was created on the spot where the house once stood. That's it's, actually how I know the name is the is the pocket park. 
<laughs> yeah, it's a cu- it's a cute little park. It's very yeah. random. It's in the middle of nowhere. It has some yeah, young totally. gr- it has some young growth trees going through it. It's you know when you know the story of the Colliers, it's kind of like a you know I don't want to say a I mean it's it's sort of like a sacred homage to them to their space. You know they live on there, and it, the the site has been criticized by the local community saying we mm. should rename it. We should rename it because what did the Colliers contribute to Harlem besides infamy? Well, that's what I was gonna say. Is like mm-hmm. it, we're not you know we're sad for them because it's such a terrible end and clearly these were two ill individuals but mm-hmm. these aren't great men Not these aren't they didn't contribute to society as a whole let alone their neighborhood if anything no. they were bringing they down were, the value of the neighborhood by how and, crappy their house was and they were specifically anti-society really at the end yeah they didn't want to be part of the neighborhood and it sounds <laughs> no. like they were pretty racist and really didn't want to be part of it once it shifted and that's what these so local, <laughs> That's what these locals are saying. And apparently, the motion to change the name of the park was defeated in a vote. Um, interesting. Which is interesting. So again, I think that says a lot about the power of what was. Like it's always been Collier's Brothers Park. It will remain Collier Brothers Park oh, at least I mean, for the foreseeable future. It may change. It could very well be changed. Luke, um, we could go on a very strong, intense tangent about changing things <laughs> yes of course monuments buildings schools etc sure 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 but i mean what i'm i'm referring to things more like let's say the tappan zee bridge right the sure. tappan zee, the tappan zee thing, bridge though. being renamed is a big humbug you know because it goes against what we know about our, our environment and even though it's a blip of a change it, it doesn't change anything sure. about our lives except and, how you narrate your traffic when you get to your relative's house and listen if you if you are a New Yorker, no one calls it the RFK. It'll always be the Triborough Bridge. Yeah, we're it's not true. changing it. Like also, no, it's, like it's what is the it? Battery Tunnel? Right. What's in a name? You know. It's true. It's true. <laughs> it's 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 often called something else, right? It's the public tells us what it is. Like same thing. I with think these, as long as it's towers. not as long as it's not directly named after a complete piece of shit like there's no hitler expressway <laughs> i'm fine with it right the the boss double tweed hitler memorial. mention on my part in this episode it's all you the boss tweed <laughs> memorial fountain <laughs> yeah no <laughs> boss tweed memorial fountain um and so the uh, stalin tunnel instead of the holland tunnel Ooh, oh this is good i like this this is a fun <laughs> this is a fun trades um so i gotta tell you a little bit about um some of the cultural depictions of the of the colliers which are awesome they are often invoked in many sort of shows and media in fraser martin crane refers to fraser and niles as the collier brothers <laughs> <laughs> Um, there's a Law and Order SVU episode, which I've seen with Wallace Shawn and Judd Hirsch as facsimiles of the Collier <gasps> brothers in a similar kind of crime. Oh, I don't know if I know that one. See, oh. now I'm mad because I've, I feel pretty confident I've seen most of the SVU episodes and with the caveat of it being most of the Olivia and Elliot SVU yes. episodes. Well, I, I think it's, I think it's post Elliot and there's been like 25 seasons, so. You know. Yeah, no, but I don't I don't really watch it in the newest editions. The part I have to I have to bring up two more. So E.L. Doctorow, amazing author of Ragtime, it, Billy, my favorite Billy, book, Billy Bathgate and others, he Love writes a, he writes Homer and Langley. That's what that's about. Yes. I've never read it. Okay. I read it, I hated it. Not good. Okay. It's historical fiction, which is why I didn't like it. Well, that's so, what he does. Yes. Yeah. So it's taking Homer and Langley, but it's extending their lives into the 60s. And they become oh. like 
they become like hippie gurus and like he, oh. he 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 gives them so much more and i think there's already enough in between the lines to create a story right i don't think you need to add too much more you know what i mean Was like there's the idea of them sort of i guess with their pushing against the man yes. and all of that that's why in the 60s they would have been guru types i guess that yeah kind it's of like makes sense it's like the beals and jerry you know they have like these little sure. acolytes who are attracted to their eccentricities and i mean I was really yearning for something that would give me more information about the Colliers themselves. Sure. But that was the point. The record <laughs> will not reflect because they didn't leave much behind besides 820 paper? tons of shit. <laughs> Bunch of paper? Some pianos? Not a single diary, not a single shred of here's my manifesto. Um, nothing. So he another didn't have time for diaries. He was collecting trash off the street. I'm inventing an electric generator that'll save my home. And I'm curing my brother's blindness with peanut butter and oranges. Oh, good work. Doing good work. Um, uh, Richard Greenberg wrote a play called The Dazzle, which examines the Collier's life. Mm. And I saw a still from the, uh, from the staging of the play. Now, the funny thing about how the hell did you do a play about a horde? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Excellent set design. Yeah. So they they the, the what I saw the staging was very suggestive. Like there's a baby sure. carriage behind them and there's a couple of things and you know, um Homer's kind of hunched up. I, I do want to read it and check it out. It mm -hmm. looks fascinating. So thus concludes the epic tale of the Collier brothers. So there's nothing left. There's nothing that remains except the name of that park. The park is the physical footprint of the house wow. that, that they destroyed from within where they lived alone for years. And wow. um, that's, that's their legacy is, you know, sort of a footnote of the butt of a joke, unfortunately, in some cases, yeah. but also, you know, maybe we can give, we can put a positive spin on it in that the modern understanding that we have of hoarding was definitely advanced. This was really one of the most famous examples, early examples of hoarding um, yes. in, the, in the 20th century that was exposed. But it's still a disease that affects many different, many people across oh the world. Oh my God, yeah. And I think with the show hoarders, the only time you see those individuals is because there's people in their lives that love them and are worried. The Collier mm -hmm. brothers, it doesn't sound like necessarily there was anybody trying to help them out of this. Right. They had social lives at some point, but they seemed to, you know, eschew those, you know, they, they, they seemed to cut people out. Probably because and, they didn't want to have people come to the house because mm. part of them probably knew no one wants to be in here. So let's keep them away. And you, and it's what you always see on these shows. And with these examples of hoarding is like, let's, you just keep pushing people away and pushing them away and pushing them away. Right. There's no Jackie O who will step in to clean your house. <laughs> No. In the 11th hour. No. Nope. So, yeah, I, even with, even if they'd existed in modern, a modern society, their money almost makes it worse for them. Sure. Right. It, They're not destitute. They don't need a handout. No. No. They, they. And Ugh. there was no there was no social services that was equipped right. to deal yeah. with them at the time, right? Whereas today we have so much more going on, and I'm sure also these guys were probably terrified of being institutionalized. Of course. Think about that time period and hell no, know, no, thank you. Right. You know, so and they were also convinced that, you know, Langley uh spoke 
at length about, you know, oh, they're going to sever my brother's optical nerve. They're going to give him drugs that will expedite his death. So there was so much anti-medical treatment, anti-medicine yeah. thought that was oh. wrapped up in this unfortunate pattern of thinking. So it's a, it's a cautionary tale, I suppose, at some level mm. about hoarding. Um, yeah. Ooh. And it can happen to anyone, you know. I think it's it's more ubiquitous than we think. I mean, I like I said, I, it's in my family for sure. I've mm -hmm. been in houses that have that issue, and it really can be this insidious thing where, it mm -hmm. and it really just kind of creeps up sometimes. Where all of a sudden you turn around and you're like, "Holy shit, where did all these plastic bags come from?" Yeah, <laughs> That's no, what it's I do true. to my husband, where I have the bag full of bags. <laughs> he gets really mad. In this bag is another bag. And another bag. Inside another bag. Inside a paper bag. It's like a, a Matryoshka doll. A Matryoshka doll of just <laughs> shit. Yes, a nesting doll of plastic. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about... That's our legacy. <laughs> so um, the, that is the Collier Brothers story and where you can examine it. Of course, I would definitely recommend folks take a walk uh, through Harlem and check out the park. It's a it's a cute little spot. And like I said, other multimedia. What's the cross street again, Luke? So it's Fifth Avenue and 128th. 28th, right. Okay. Yeah, it's right on the corner. So there was a row of five brownstones in a row. And of the five, two of them have been demolished, one for another reason. But they were part of like a block. So they all had this like unified mm. architecture. And it was part of this new development. And they were sort of the first ones up there, among the first families up there in, in Harlem. It's crazy. Thank you so much. Such a great job. So fantastic to finally learn more about this story it's one of those things where just being from here you always hear like oh yeah call your brothers they were just these famous hoarders but not really like looking into the story much or knowing much about it it really is a crazy crazy tale knowing that they were so well off and then have mm -hmm. such a horrendous end to their lives that's, it's that's really all from grace yeah it's just waste it's just horrible waste it really is so wasted potential for sure. Yeah, yeah, because they were clearly intelligent men. They were. They were going you know, places. Yeah, that mental illness, man. Mm-hmm. Some mommy issues, and Oof. good to go. Well, thanks, Luke. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. Thank you so much. Folks, thank you for listening. Remember to rate and subscribe to the Morbid Museum podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Instagram at the Morbid Museum. Join us next time as we explore the Morbid Museum podcast. Bye. Bye.